I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. We'll be reading verses 1 through 8, and then we'll also touch on 1 Timothy 2.8. That will be our second text, but mainly we will lodge in Luke chapter 18. Beginning in verse 1, hear now the word of our Lord. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay over them long? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And 1 Timothy 2.8, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. I don't know. I don't know. Those were the very first words uttered by our oldest daughter. Not mama or daddy or milk or bottle. I don't know. Plain as day. You know, for some reason, we tend to remember first words and last words as carrying a special significance. Just do a search on famous last words. I mean, beyond those famous last words, hey, Bubba, hold my beer and watch this. I would commend to you, for instance, the last words of the famous chemist, Michael Faraday. His wife had just asked him if he had ever pondered what his occupation might be in the next life, and he answered with his last words spoken on this earth, I shall be with Christ, and that is enough. Firsts and lasts, for some reason, tend to carry weight, and so I feel very privileged to be able to have the last words from this pulpit in 2017. And as I pondered how to wrap up this year, I could think of no more important message to bring, no more poignant exhortation, no more practical encouragement than this morning's message, a serious call to persistent prayer. Now at the very outset of this passage, Luke informs us of two very important details that will be foundational and formative in our interpretation of Jesus' words here. First, he establishes most clearly the genre of the passage, and then he lays out the central point of its interpretation. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. The genre is that of a parable. Now, there are a few peculiarities to parabolic genre in hermeneutics. I still remember from my first hermeneutics course back when the dinosaurs roamed the earth, the one main central point about parabolic genre 
is that a parable has only one main central point. It differs in that respect from an allegory. In the world of Christian literature, the most famous allegory would be John Bunyan's work, The Pilgrim's Progress. Just read through that remarkable work and see the plethora of comparisons to our own walk of faith in the Christian life. But a parable makes only one main point. Vernon Dorkson explains it this way. With but few exceptions, the stories of Jesus Christ were parables, not allegories. A true parable has but one main point. Christ spoke a parable to drive home the truth he was endeavoring to teach. Dodd, referring to C.H. Dodd, calls this the most important principle of interpretation. He continues, the typical parable, whether it be a simple metaphor or a more elaborate similitude or a full-length story, presents one single point of comparison. Matthew Henry says this parable has its key hanging at the door. The drift and design of it are prefixed. So not only does Luke tell us that this is a parable of Jesus, he also gives us from the outset the central point of the parable that they should always pray and not lose heart. More than a few people have found this parable disturbing and irritating that Jesus would would use this horrible judge to teach us about going to God in prayer. But Jesus is using the common Hebrew stylistic device here of, of how much more. He's not saying that the Father is this unjust judge who really doesn't care about your needs and has no real desire to provide for you, but will only hear you if you wear him down. No, no. The Hebrew how much more formula rather says, if even this unjust judge will give this widow justice because of her perseverance, how much more will your loving father hear you when you do not lose heart? The one central thing that we take away from the widow's relationship to this judge is not her eloquence, not her oratory, not her bargaining savvy, nor her irresistible logic of her arguments. The central point in this encounter is her persistence, her perseverance, her absolute refusal to lose heart. So I'm not going to go into any great exegetical detail here beyond these few textual considerations. And from this example from the lips of Jesus, I want to press upon you this morning a serious call to persistent prayer using the outline that you have before you in your bulletin. And so we come to our first point, our great need for prayer. And before we get too far into that first point, I want to note just a couple of things about the title. The first is that it's a serious call. When we come to consider our need for prayer, we're not just joking around. We're not being flippant because this call today to persistent prayer touches the very heart of the Christian life. Not only is it serious in the sense of being sober and weighty, it's also serious in the sense that it is not to be considered just a nice option for an optional extra for your Christian life if you want to be extra spiritual. No, as we'll see in a moment, it is indispensable and essential. So what do I mean by persistent? When I speak of persistent prayer, I'm speaking of prayer that, that to use the language of the text, does not lose heart. 
It's prayer that perseveres, does not give up when it does not achieve immediate results, keeps coming back into the presence of God again and again and again. It's like a sanctified energizer bunny. It just keeps coming and coming and coming to the Lord in prayer. So this is not a prayer that's merely perfunctory or given without thought or involvement or just a one-time, one-and-done thing, but it's a prayer that costs you something. And of course, that brings up our next sub-point, what is prayer? Now, I just mentioned that it involves coming into the presence of God, and Dr. Mort- Martin Lloyd-Jones latches onto that as he says, what is prayer? I can think of no better way of describing it than these two words that we have at the end of 1 John 3.19. Hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. That is prayer. Prayer is coming before him. Now we are always in the presence of God. In him we live and move and have our being, says Acts 17.28. And we are always under his eye, but prayer is something still more special, he says. Prayer is having a special audience and going immediately and directly to him, before him. Prayer is something in which we turn our back on everything else, excluding everything else, while for the time being, we find ourselves face to face with God alone. There's a sense in which one cannot expound it further, It is just that, he says. Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century London preacher says, true prayer is neither a mere mental exercise nor a vocal performance. It is far deeper than that. It is a spiritual transaction with the creator of heaven and earth. Of course, the Puritans had a lot to say about prayer and they certainly knew how to pray fervently, persistently, and biblically. And that short, succinct definition of prayer that they gave us in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 98, has yet to be improved on. What is prayer? And their answer, prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. And then in questions 99 through 107, they unpack the question of how we are to pray using the Lord's Prayer as the biblical pattern to guide us in our prayers. And while this morning's message is really not so much addressing how to pray as it is simply encouraging us to pray, I would certainly commend for your extra study those questions from the shorter catechism as well as the more detailed explanation given in the larger catechism, questions 178 through 196. I think your new year can be much improved by seriously considering those things, if nothing else than by giving you a more informed and full perspective on what we are actually saying when we recite the Lord's Prayer. But that's beyond our scope today. And so we come to our second sub-point, our helplessness. You know, Jesus told us something very humbling in John 15:5, he said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, without me, says the King James, you can do nothing. 
Now, do we live our lives as though we really believe that? Allow me to make so bold as to suggest that for the most part we don't. If I really believed that, if we really grabbed hold of that, I think we would pray far more than we do. Rather, I think many of us tend to live our lives as though Jesus had said, apart from me, without me, you can do quite a bit. In fact, don't come bothering me with all your little problems that you can really solve yourself. You can handle this. Now, when you've come to the end of your rope, of course, come to me and I'll do what you can't do. But for the most part, you got this. Leave me alone. At least there are far too many days when I tend to live like that. And brothers and sisters, I'll just tell you up front, this is an area of my life where I need this sermon every bit as much as you do. I'm not satisfied with my prayer life. I struggle in my prayer life. It's an ongoing struggle for me. And I suspect it might be a struggle for many of you as well. I identify with Martin Lloyd-Jones' words here. That's the difficulty, he says. Thoughts will keep on obtruding themselves and our imaginations will wander all over the world and certain ideas and proposals and wants and needs will intrude. But all that must be dismissed and we must just start by realizing that we are actually and literally in the presence of the living God before him. I think Martin Luther grasped this truth of our utter helplessness that without him we can do nothing. When he was faced with a particularly difficult day ahead of him, he said, work, work from morning until late at night. In fact, I have so much to do that I shall have to spend the first three hours in prayer. This is the same Martin Luther who said, to pray well is the better half of study. I confess that's not my first tendency. When I'm faced with a particularly difficult day, I'm tempted rather to try to get up early to get a jump start on the tasks of the day. Maybe even cut the prayer time a little short because there's so much to do. But that thinking does not recognize my utter dependence on Christ. Without him, I can do nothing. And so prayer is indispensable. It's indispensable for our salvation, both acts 2.21 and Romans 10.13 say virtually the same thing. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's a pretty clear statement of the necessity of prayer for salvation. Now it's not prayer that saves, no, but the person who is saved will pray. Now, of course we understand that there are those who do not have the ability to speak audibly or the capacity to form a prayer in the same way as, as you might form a prayer. My father was not converted until after his stroke, which took from him the ability to speak or to mentally construct a proper sentence. So in that sense, he never prayed in his life. Oh, but he did call on the name of the Lord in his heart of hearts. In the only way that he could, he came before the Lord in prayer to be saved. Look through the scriptures and you'll see it's a characteristic of the wicked that they call not upon the Lord. As in Psalm 14, four, have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and call not upon the Lord. 
Now remember that when God sent Ananias to Paul after Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus, what did he tell Ananias about this famous persecutor of Christ's church? He said in Acts 9:11, "Behold, he prays." Martin Luther said to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. And echoing that thought, Matthew Henry said, you may as soon find a living man that does not breathe as a living Christian that does not pray. It's indispensable for our growth. J.C. Ryle puts it this way, I assert confidently that the principal means by which most believers have become great in the church of Christ is the habit of diligent private prayer. Tell me of one of the goodly fellowship of saints and martyrs who has not had this mark most prominently. They were men of prayer. I'd simply add that becoming great in the church of Christ is not the same thing as becoming famous in the kingdom. I dare say there are many an unknown and uncelebrated praying grandmother who in her closet has accomplished more for God's kingdom than many a celebrated preacher. Fifthly, our tendency to neglect. Scriptures are filled to the brim with exhortations and encouragements for us to pray, partly because we have such a natural tendency to neglect prayer. J.C. Ryle says there's a vast neglect in private prayer. It's one of those private transcripts between God and our souls which no eye sees and therefore one which people are tempted to pass over and leave undone. Now someone will likely notice If you avoid the assembly for a few weeks, they may wonder if you've been sick. But the time you spend alone with God is not so public, not so noticeable, and thus easier to neglect. We have much to pray for. There are needs all around us. In our families, our church, our vocations, our country, the world, just look around. Everywhere we turn under every bush are abundant reminders of our need. Even touched as we are by God's redeeming grace, we still live in a fallen world and we still carry within us the remains of indwelling sin and corruption. Of ourselves, we do not have the strength to do what God calls us to do. So let me move to our second point, God's delight in prayer. Come unto me, God says, more than once. And Jesus adds, him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out in John 6, 37. Throughout the scriptures, it's abundantly clear that God delights in the prayers of his people. He loves for his people to come to him. He loves it when we pray. Consider two points here, the numerous commands that he gives for us to pray and the example of Jesus himself. Philippians 4, 6 says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 says, pray without ceasing. 1 Timothy 2, 1, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Ephesians 6, 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Matthew 26, 41, Jesus says to his disciples, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And on and on and on. Again and again, God commands us to pray. 
Remember Samuel's words to the people of Israel in 1 Samuel 12, 23, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And there's the example of Jesus. Read again through the gospels. It was, he, <clears throat> if there was ever a man of prayer, it was Jesus. How often do we read of him taking great pains to find a solitary place in order to pray, slipping away from the crowd in the wee morning hours, rising long before the sun to spend time with his father. It's abundantly obvious that prayer was a huge priority in his life. Now, if the Lord of glory, in whom was no sin, who knew no sin, who was one with the Father, if he had such a need for prayer, how much more do we stand in need of prayer? Then the question, why pray if God is sovereign? It's a common objection. It says, well, if God is sovereign, if he's already determined what's going to happen, then why in the world should I bother to pray? If my prayers are not going to change a predetermined outcome, then what's the point? And in answer to this, I just want to bring up three points. First is the shape of his providence, and then brush strokes, and following up with that in, with an encouragement never to minimize the importance of prayer. First, the shape of his providence. You know, this objection betrays a misunderstanding of the biblical teaching on God's providence. It's a common misconception to think that God has decreed the end results only, but not the means to accomplish that end result. Notice how the Westminster Confession unpacks the doctrine of providence in chapter 5, sections 1 through 3. God, the creator of all things, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge, and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Two, although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly, yet by the same providence, he orders them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. And third, God in his ordinary providence makes use of means yet is free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure. And of course, in the notes, uh, uh, the footnotes of this section of the catechism, or the, of the confession, they include numerous scripture, which shows that they didn't pull this statement just out of their hats, but from the teachings of the Bible. And I'd simply commend that chapter and those scriptures for your further study. I illustrated that principle in today's children's sermon God has so ordered things that in the outworking of his providence, he delights to shape the outworking of that providence around the prayers of his people. E.M. Bounds says, God shapes the world by prayer. The more praying there is in the world, the better the world will be. The mightier the forces against evil. As God paints the ever-expanding canvas of world history, of church history, of your history and my history. He paints that canvas using the brushes of our prayers. He's ordained it that way. The shape 
and shades of his providence, be they the large strokes or the tiniest strokes, are applied with the brush of your prayers. So why would you not give him those brushes and many of them with which to paint the ongoing canvas that we see unfolding in his story every day? Don't you see what a privilege he gives us to be so involved in the outworking of his purposes? So I would say never minimize the importance of prayer. I'd like, I'd like, to, I'd like you to not think of prayer as the recourse of last resort. Oh, how I have to fight against that tendency in my own breast to treat prayer as a weapon of last resort. You know, well, there's nothing else I can do. All I can do now is pray. No, prayer should not be our weapon of last resort. It should be our weapon of first resort. It's as John Bunyan said. He said, you can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. Puritan Thomas Hooker expresses it this way, prayer is my chief work and it is by means of it that I carry on the rest. And to that Oswald Chambers adds, prayer does not fit us for the greater work, prayer is the greater work. Before we close today, I want to bring before us three general applications. First is that prayer is hard work. I have a great respect for Sinclair Ferguson, and I really appreciate what he said about this. He tells of when he was a young believer, and he was talking to a friend who was older in the faith, and he was telling this friend how he he didn't understand why some people struggle with prayer so much. He says the easiest thing in the world, you're just talking to God. It's not that hard. And he recalls how his friend, older in the faith, said to him, just wait, it will not always be so. And Dr. Ferguson commented on how grateful he was for his friend's candor, and he found out, yes, he was quite right. Now, perhaps you're here and your prayer life is such that it's a pure and simple and easy delight. First, I rejoice with you in that. Praise the Lord you find your prayer life so easy and refreshing. It's a wonderful gift. But then I would simply encourage you that first, it's not so with everyone. I would encourage you to understand that for many people, prayer is difficult, particularly that that fervent, persistent prayer that I'm talking about this morning. So please do not be harsh or impatient with someone who may not find prayer to be as easy as you do at this moment. And secondly, I would encourage you just to be aware that you may very well come upon a time when it's difficult for you as well. Most of the eminent saints I know can testify of times when the heavens seemed as brass. It was as though God were holding heaven's door shut against them. And it was only after lengthy struggle that they came to understand that God wasn't holding the door shut in order to keep them out, but in order to make them knock all the louder and all the longer. Please, my friend, do not be disheartened if that day comes upon you too. Secondly, don't give up because God does not always give us a clear answer immediately. John Calvin speaks of this parable and he says this, the parable was admirably fitted to instruct that they ought to be importunate in their prayers to God the Father 
until they at length draw from him what he would otherwise appear to be unwilling to give. Not that by our prayers we gain a victory over God and bend him slowly and reluctantly to compassion, but because the actual facts do not all at once make it evident that he graciously listens to our prayers. The leading truth conveyed is that God does not all at once grant assistance to his people because he chooses to be, as it were, wearied out by our prayers. God doesn't always give us the answer we ask for right away. But when he delays, it's not because he doesn't care for us. Rather, it's because he does care for us and delays his answer for our own good and for his righteous purpose. As Anselm of Canterbury said, God does not delay to hear our prayers because he has no mind to give, but that by enlarging our desires, he may give us the more largely. And as Martin Luther said, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, but laying hold of his willingness. So into all outward appearances, it seems God's not hearing. Don't give up, don't lose heart. Keep on praying. And in fact, pray your hardest when it's hardest to pray. We're still without a senior pastor. We've been through round one, come up empty. We're headed back to the drawing board as it were. Tempting as it is to lose heart. Tempting as it is to grow faint. Jesus encourages us today to always pray and not lose heart. Just because doesn't, God doesn't seem to be using your particular paintbrush right away, don't give up, give him another, and another, and another. I'm not sure exactly who said this. Said, I look at a stone cutter hammering away at a rock a hundred times without so much as a crack showing in it. Yet at the hundred and first blow, it splits in two. I know that it was not the one blow that did it, but all that had gone before. Thirdly, I would encourage you to persistent prayer and to audacious prayer. I would encourage you to pray with a bold and holy audacity. Like the prayer of Stephen in Acts 7, as he was being stoned, he prayed, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Now that really was an audacious prayer as they were hell-bent on snuffing out the gospel. And Stephen knew what it would take for that prayer to be answered. These enemies of the gospel would have to be overcome by the Holy Spirit, brought to Jesus Christ and their sins forgiven. And yet God was pleased to grant that audacious prayer as one of that hateful mob named Saul of Tarsus was later waylaid on the road to Damascus and overcome by the Holy Spirit to become the Apostle Paul. It was an audacious prayer. And yet how often in the history of God's kingdom do we find him delighting to answer such an audacious prayer? So I would encourage you also to pray audaciously for the advancement of the kingdom. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And even when it seems that God is not inclined to answer, keep praying. Keep praying. Come, my soul, thy suit prepare. Jesus loves to answer prayer. 
He himself has bid thee pray, therefore will not say thee nay, therefore will not say thee nay. Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. None can ever ask too much. Pray with me. Father, we ask that you will encourage us in our heart of hearts to be more persistent, to be more diligent, that prayer may be a greater priority in our lives, that we may draw closer to you, and that we may moment by moment and day by day realize and live in our dependence upon you, for certainly we are dependent upon you. Bless your word, O Lord, that it may have its lodging place in each heart this day. We pray in Jesus' holy and blessed name. Amen.